0: Mm-hmm. Gen C is the generation of the new internet. In Gen C, the C stands for crypto, but it also stands for creators, the connected consumer, and collectibles, both digital and physical with on chain provenance. It stands for culture and characters, the ones we play in games and the companion ones that AI is building alongside us. It stands for community and digital citizenship, and the new set of transparent and trustless tools being built to govern them. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they look at the hybrid, digital, and physical spaces being built all around us. And finally, how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how brands, large and small, are building for these audiences. Welcome to Gen C. All right, Gen C, we are back. We have another special episode as Avery is still out on vacation slash CES. So sitting in her chair is Magdalena Kala, Mags, as we like to know her, Spicy Mags. She was our first guest on the pod, a frequent writer, speaker, collaborator, investor in the Web3 space. How's it been going?
1: It's been great. I mean, new year, new optimism about this space. What's not to love? Thanks so much for having me.
0: Did you have any New Year's resolutions we should know about?
1: My new year's resolution is just to go more with the flow. I feel like we try to control so many things that are outside of our control, and for things that are outside of my control, I want to just let them be and not be anxious since I can't do anything about it anyway.
0: I love that. Uh I don't I feel like I follow you enough on social platforms to know that going with the flow still feels very regimented. I mean, like, you're like playing competitive sports, you're catching pythons, you're traveling all over the world. Like, it just seems like it's still pretty busy even going with the flow.
1: Oh, but all those things are just actually in my control. How I spend my time, how I um, kind of dedicate my time and attention and everything. I'm, I'm talking more about things like, what is SCC going to do next week? I have zero control over that. I mean, I am thinking about it, I can plan for different scenarios, but at the end of the day, it is outside of my control. So I'm trying to release some of the anxiety that comes with things of that nature.
0: All right. Well, in relation to that, let's get into some of the stories that are kind of being bubbled up in the crypto space and the emerging tech space this week. You just mentioned it. The SEC is beyond your control. We are looking at the potential any moment now of getting SEC potential approval on an ETF, an exchange-traded fund in Bitcoin, which should bring a lot of retail dollars into the space. And my question for you is, as someone who focuses on the consumer segment a lot, do you think that having a kind of more established financial vehicle that's, in some respects, blessed by the U.S. government opens up opportunity for people to sort of come into crypto and rethink their relationship to it. I guess, will this lead to, again, brands and, and builders having more opportunity with consumers in the crypto space?
1: It's probably a hot take, but I don't think it's that meaningful from that perspective. I think it's a very important step for the whole ecosystem. But I also think that even myself being so deep in it, I think of Bitcoin and the rest of crypto and the Web3 as two very different things. Um, and then so it's that Bitcoin ETFs are a very important step from the legitimacy standpoint, from kind of the reputation of crypto and actually from like a price stabilization perspective, right? We cannot have the digital gold be so volatile. And so I don't actually know how much it translates into the rest of the adoption. You could actually make the opposite argument, which is that. The jumps in price of Bitcoin have actually been the primary driver of consumer attention because they're a primary driver of con- of news stories, and and those have been historically the drivers of people finally being like, ah, oh, might as well like buy a little bit, right? right. But but the, the general legitimacy of the space and and the comfort of the U.S. regulators with the asset class and starting to think about how to regulate it in a uh, in a way that is not completely ad hoc or, or kind of misunderstanding of the space, like very important first step.
0: Well, I just want to say, as you were saying that, the approval just happened. No way! <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to give you credit for bringing it forward into into reality. I literally
1: was thinking it's... in the back of my head, I was like, but I haven't checked Twitter in the last hour. We're probably going to approve. <laughs> right.
0: So our our news team just uh, just posted in our Slack that we, that the approval just came through. I there think it's going to be wild to see. I mean, I, I guess what I'm interested in is other than just the fact that potentially we get reduced vol- volatility and, and more government interest in trying to create some regulation, I think about it in, in respect of things that are described by people like Elizabeth Warren as criminal are now acceptable to be traded on the New York Stock yeah. Exchange, which I do think changes the conversation and maybe starts to change a narrative that still may have a 12 or 18 month arc to play out to get to some place of legitimacy, but it is a, a pretty interesting opportunity to think about it through the lens of, is this one of those things we needed to happen in order to sort of push everything for Web3 and blockchain to Bitcoin forward in that kind of public mindset?
1: Very important first step, but it's still a baby step.
0: All right. So don't talk about anything else that might happen during this podcast, because I don't want to dis- <laughs> derail us. Number two, this is a, a story that just was released. I know both you and I know some of the, f- the folks over at Polygon. Polygon and Fox together announced this sort of joint venture to open source a media verification platform. It's something I know we've talked a lot about collectively through the lens, how can truth in a world of AI be sort of defined and validated? And I think while we all believe that media should be differentiated from AI generated content, is that a space one that you think is there? Is there any interest in the investing side of? And then two, do you think consumers actually care enough to when they see a story on their Facebook feed to sort of say, wait a second, is this actually AI driven or not?
1: It's an interesting question because I have seen an uptick of pitches on this general theme. It definitely falls in the bucket of, we know there is a need in there somewhere and blockchain can actually be a very important and interesting tech for it. So absolutely accepting all the pitches on that. What I struggle with as an investor is, kind of the other side of it, which is not just even on the consumer side, do they care, do they not care? Because quite frankly, I don't think people care as much on the, was it written by a human? Was it written by the AI, for example? But they do care about veracity of information. And even then, they like they only care unless, if it's, it's otherwise going to put them in trouble, right? So many people watch fake news and not even realize it's fake news and go about their lives and couldn't care. And so there's this element number one of, there is a big portion of population that truly cares about veracity of information. You don't want to be consuming deep fakes and embarrassing yourself um, you know, like with your friends because you're claiming something to be true that's not true. But then there's the other side of it also, which is like, and are you then willing to pay for it as well? Because I think a lot of the content verification falls into this unfortunate bucket of common resources where we all want it, but no one wants to pay for it. Like we want content to be true, but we are not willing to pay for the verification of content. I think the payment uh, side then can come from the other side, which is you as a creator, you as a public figure should be interested in verifying all your content because otherwise you are actually the person who is most at risk when there are things created kind of using your name, image, and likeness. And then there's obviously the other side of that too, which is your own creations are being used to train models to generate new content and you have no form of monetizing that. And so I actually think Polygon, they are taking an interesting approach in that it kind of plays to both sides of the spectrum. I think humans in general are either motivated by fear or greed. And with the content verification, if you can find a model where you get to both address the fear, protect your reputation, protect your content, as well as greed, have this additional monetization capability because you've now verified that you own something and you can go after people who are using it illegally, that can become interesting. But devil always, is always in the details and execution and operation of these things. I think we're a long way still from actually having something that's more mainstream and, and common in use.
0: I mean, I agree with you in that respect. I think the the thing that I found interesting with playing with this tool that Fox and Polygon came out with was I could take a, I could find any image on a Fox website and I could put the image location in and it would tell me if it was real from mm-hmm. like what the source page was. And I thought that was interesting again not that I think people will do that, but I thought that. All right, so it is having an archive of databases yeah. where I think that there is opportunity actually goes to what when our producer said on our show last week, which was at what point does the Facebook TikToks of the world look at that chain level, if you will, and just puts a badge on that says, this is verified legitimate from, right? So that, so that you can just just know at least that this is actually a New York Times article versus a altered New York Times article, which is very easy to do these days with, with AI.
1: But do they have an incentive to do so when so many of the eyeball attention driving content pieces are not true Content pieces, right? Like that's that's where I guess started going to the incentives. Where on the one hand you want to protect the credibility of your platform, and certainly for things that are more uh, scary in nature, you want to have a way of you know detection and verification, and all of that. But there's also this element of at the end of the day, you want eyeballs, and there's a reason why eyeballs fuck to, to that type of content.
0: Agreed. I mean, and there's also a large contingent of people that will see something on Fox News or the New York Times and assume it's false no matter what. So even if it's verified to be from the publisher, does that actually do anything for people when it really comes down to it? Uh, yeah. All right. Max, the final thing I want to get your take on. Um, I was reading an article yesterday that I guess last year was the year where, where we hit $50 billion in digital cosmetic objects in the video game industry. Right? Like, it's just a giant industry of people buying in-game things. And then I combined that thinking with an article I was reading yesterday about there is a Chinese virtual influencer named Ayayi, um, which is now launching a clothing line that will be both digital and physical. We also spoke on the show a couple of weeks ago about the fact that Walmart and Unity are doing a plug-in so that Walmart can actually sell physical things inside game worlds. As someone again who's like interested in looking into these various space opportunities, what's your take on digital collectibles, and then also the digital to physical collectible pathway that comes through these virtual worlds, these virtual influencers. Are you bullish? Are you bearish? What's your your take?
1: Sam, this is a question that could itself be like an hour-long conversation. As an investor in Epic Games, through my previous role, certainly a big believer in the digital realm because I've seen it firsthand kind of how much volume players like Fortnite and Roblox are actually doing. The physical digital makes all the sense in the world, we at the end of the day buy items because we want to self express or we want to flex or because they have utility. And that is as true in the digital realm as in the physical, especially as we spend, you know, upwards of uh, 50% of our time in the digital realm. So that's always made sense. I think the tying of the physical and the digital into like one purchase is an interesting thing. And I actually don't know where I fully land on that because on the one hand, if something is sufficiently important to me, I want to flex it in both. On the other hand, I would not be surprised if we actually go into multiple identities, right? Like what person I am in my like Fortnite with friends there is very different who I am with like my Miami friend. What I absolutely love uh, is this Walmart Unity collaboration because that's how commerce in the digital realm should actually have always worked. Like we should not have had digital malls that you now have to work to put people to walk through like it makes no sense whatsoever. like get customers where they are, where their attention is, and remove as much friction as possible, right? Right now, what that looks like is you have products advertising on streamers playing the games and mentioning a product. Like there are so many steps there that you can remove if you just put the items directly into the game. And so like I love the removal of the friction. I love serving products and kind of commerce experiences where people are. And I think that actually is the true next evolution of e-commerce. Like forget about Web3, Crypto, Metaverse. Like that is actually the next step for e-commerce. If you think about where we've been with e-commerce overall over the last, um, I don't know, 20, 30 years, it is a very skeuomorphic experience. We've basically taken a physical catalog and put it online. Like that's literally what e-commerce is. There is a list of products and you're scrolling through as if you're flipping pages and like, that's what it is. And then any other innovation around that has just been innovation for innovation's sake in my mind. I think of some websites that are trying to be interactive and fun, but it actually is even a worse shopping experience than just flipping through a list of products versus having this more immersive experience that if you're in a, you know, game related to some like beauty products or game related to like home design or game related to more like fashion community, et cetera. Like you can just put those products in very naturally and have this immersive commerce experience as opposed to this very e-commerce one, 1.0 one point that we've had for a really long time now.
0: Totally agree with you. And I even think it goes a step further of, we already have now seen a pathway over the last bunch of years where influencer wears X, now you can buy X, right? Yeah. From it, from a platform or whatever. There's no reason that that influencer needs to be a person or a a virtual human. There's no reason that the car I play in Forza isn't a car that I also can buy, uh, you know, down the road. I think that people love the idea of representation across all their environments. And even to your point that I can be one thing in one world and a completely different thing in another world. But all of those should be a way that there's a pathway to represent that physically and digitally. So I think that totally agree. And I think Shopify is... Uh, coming next in the same way that Walmart is is already in this world, the more we can enable simplification of commerce, but not make it feel like you have to go to the store is such a big thing. I I totally agree that we should have never built these digital virtual malls that no one was ever going to go into anyway. We should have just said, how do we enable commerce in a simplified manner for a new audience and a new format
1: and that's contextual and that's discovery driven right because if i have a specific thing that i want to buy like 100 percent of the time i go to amazon i type in what i want or i go to the brand website i type what i want and i get it but if it's a discovery driven then i love the approach of just i'm already hanging out in the digital realm in this game with like-minded individuals and i want to be inspired by what they are wearing or what they're listening to or whatever
0: absolutely All right, Mags, let's get to our interview. We have Jen, a.k.a. Toki Monsta, who's a very well-known DJ, musician, producer, and now entrepreneur, and her partner, Laura J, who have started a company called Sona, which is really focused in the digital music space, built on top of Web3 Rails. And so it would be really interesting to talk to them and make sure you look into our show notes, follow Mags, follow Double Down Fund.
1: Subscribe to my newsletter. Consensus
0: 2024 global crypto regulation, the disruptive power of AI, the rise of tokenization. Consensus is the one event where experts convene to talk about the ideas shaping our digital future. Join developers, investors, founders, brands, policymakers, and plenty more in Austin, Texas, from May 29th through the 31st. The 10th Annual Consensus is curated by Coindesk to feature the industry's most sought after speakers and provide unparalleled networking opportunities and unforgettable experiences. Take 15% off registration with the code GENC15. Register now at consensus.coindesk.com and I'll see you there. All right, we are here with Toki Munsta and Laura J, co-founders of Sona Technologies. Very excited to talk to you guys and discuss everything, creator culture, internet music, real music, and what you guys are building. I would love just to start off with each of you to introduce yourself. Give us like the 30 to 60 second, who you are, what you're doing, and maybe also how you guys came together. Maybe Toki, we can start with you.
2: Yeah. So I'm Toki Monsta. I'm a music producer, DJ, performer, also music startup, co-founder.
3: I'm Laura. I have like a sort of a layman's high school background in music, but mostly a background in product design and protocol design and stumbled into creating Sona through connecting with Jen. We met on a flight going to Art Basel about three years ago now, I think two, two and a half, something like that.
2: Complete strangers, by the
3: way. We were both connected through uh, FWB. We both knew Trevor McFedry. So when we're tweeting back and forth at each other because there were this there was this little couple next to Jen, who's super chatty on the plane, wanted to figure out which parties everyone was going to in Basel. I was finalizing the guest list for FWB, and she saw it because she was sitting on the seat behind me and started tweeting that she had gotten this like couple on the guest list for FWB, I was tweeting back out at her and Trevor reached out. I was like, you two need to, you two would be friends. You two would hit it off. So I was initially having sort of like thoughts around how I would sort of come into music and went through or how I was thinking it could really come together. I connected with Jen because I tweeted this super cryptic tweet about music NFTs without selling your rights or constantly having to coming up with like perks and benefits. And that really piqued her interest and we connected and she said that it was something that could work for her, that could work for her label. And that was honestly the encouragement and validation that I needed to be like, okay, let's
0: like, let's go do this. What is Sona's differentiator compared to other Web3 music platforms? And I think I, if you can go even just a little bit deeper on how you guys ride along with other existing platforms, it'd be great just to give the audience the kind of one-on-one of what Sona is.
3: Sona, basically what it does is it it's it's a couple layers you have a streaming layer, you have a marketplace layer, and then you have the protocol underneath that collects all the transaction fees from any transaction that happens on Sona. So let's say someone buys a Sona from an artist, we take a 7% cut. Someone buys some merch on the platform, we take a 7% cut. We pool that percentage across all transactions that happen on the platform. And then every two weeks, we redistribute it pro rata, so proportional to how much the music was streamed. And if a Sona has been purchased, the artist shares those rewards or those payouts with the person that collected their song as a way for the protocol itself to thank the collector, to thank the supporter, thank the fan, so that the artist can focus on their music. So now the artist has these like two new revenue streams. They have marketplace revenue and they have that recurring revenue coming out based on how much their music was consumed. So we built the protocol, we built the streaming platform. And I think the main difference is that we've put so much work into making this compatible with the existing music systems, (laughs) working directly, right, with distributors, and also creating something that puts the crypto on the back end so that artists have a bit of an easier mind interacting with it. And fans have something a lot more user-friendly and accessible to engage with while they learn the power of this technology.
0: Mags, I remember you and I having a conversation. I think we were both at ETHCC and we were sort of like a little bit on the skeptical, a little bit on the bullish side of where NFTs and music get together. Mags, you invest in all in this whole category. So is there like an underlying question that you have about how to like authentically bring musicians into this ecosystem? Or are you just like, nah, this is never going to work?
1: Well, you're asking a very big question. And I think that kind of points to the framework that I think about. I'm curious kind of how your product and how you're thinking about the company fits within that, which to me, I think is three vectors. One, do you think about increasing the size of the pie or just how the pie is split between artists and other? I think two is if it's about increasing the size of the pie, how much time it requires from the artists and creators. And then three is like how much you have to fight this establishment right now in order to make these things happen. So I'm kind of curious, as you think about different elements of the music ecosystem and different stakeholders, how you're approaching this space from that angle.
2: I mean, I can say firstly that it's both. You want the pie to get bigger, you want the slices of the pie to get bigger. The main thing is the pie was already big enough to share anyways, you know, and that's the issue with the music industry. There's always been Opportunity to give people bigger slices, but then now we can also grow through innovative income streams for music because what was working is not working now. Totally, totally. I think I I really love that question because you frame it in sort of
3: exactly the way that we were thinking through the problem space. That was, you know, I looked at music in Web3 and you were taking what worked with JPEGs and throwing music on it and calling it a music NFT and it wasn't solving any problems for any musicians. It wasn't creating any sort of sustainable revenue. And it certainly wasn't um, compatible with any deals or revenue structures that currently exist around music. So the, it doesn't really have much value to consumers either. Right. Exactly. It's like, why are you buying it? Right. It's, it's another piece of merch or it's digital vinyl and that's great. But then say that it's that. And if you say that it's that and you cut out speculation, it's very hard to see how much value it was actually creating for artists which I think we saw sort of the the proof in the pudding in 2023 when sort of the volume of music NFTs dropped significantly because suddenly it wasn't something to speculate around necessarily. But in thinking of, of Sona, we wanted to make something that was one, super easy to onboard and extremely time efficient, right? Something that an artist could show up, claim a profile, not have to go through the arduous process of uploading and going through this like huge, huge, huge marketing campaigns for one drop, but then doesn't have any sort of like recurring revenue after the fact. The other thing we really focused on was making sure that whatever we built plugged in to the existing structures in the music industry, we wanted to create a system that was more equitable, that was more efficient, that artists paid more, but that played by the rules so that slowly we could go changing potentially, right, how much of the pie an artist gets as well. I think being the only sort of music and web3 company that even addressed Licensing deals are structures around royalties for publishing, for mechanicals, right? I think it was a breath of fresh air for the music industry to be talking to a company that even understood what that meant. So we've actually been met with open arms and a lot of curiosity around how we're thinking about things. Because as much as the incumbents might be benefiting from the current system, everyone can benefit from more revenue everyone can benefit from more efficient revenue streams. And that's what we offer. We're not shutting down something to do something else. We're providing something completely supplementary, completely parallel. And then if that really works, right, could potentially then become the standard. Yeah.
2: For us, our tactic was not to go and destroy existing systems. We are trying to improve upon things that are working for a lot of people, you know, this idea of democratizing music when we have this access to basically every song and we use these streaming platforms in that way, but what's not commonly known is that streaming was introduced as a way to combat piracy because in the era of Napster RIP, that was when like musicians were also struggling a lot. So what we're seeing is something that's incrementally better than that, but not the best solution. And it's really devalued music a lot in that like these artists can't really survive. But we have now an ecosystem where every artist has a chance and every listener has all this access. So I don't want to take that away. I think that's actually quite beautiful. Everyone has a chance now, but the payment component is still stretched thin. So when we presented it to industry powerhouses, they they understood what we're doing, but they also understood that we're here to play nice. We're here to just create something new. We're not here to take away. We're here to expand upon. So... That did make that integration pretty positive, as well as the fact that Sona is a protocol that can play nicely with others as well. So at the point that they see that our system works, they can also plug into our protocol and use whatever we have. We're, we want to share. We want to grow. We want to help everyone to create a better system for our musicians. Yeah,
1: One of the things I love about your digital twin situation is that you actually highlight the collector and the fan in the profile. I always felt that when you are buying digital items and supporting the artists, you do it because you love the artist and, and or you do it because you want to flex that support. And so if there is no venue to actually flex, I've been here, I collected this, I'm supporting, the value is diminished and you guys are actually putting it at the very center of the experience as well. Are there any other aspects of kind of, you know, true fan behavior that you're kind of thinking about incorporating as you're building the platform? We're talking about sort of like Jen highlighted
3: the need for discovery to be decentralized where like giving people access to discovering music, giving artists the ability to be heard while balancing, showcasing and highlighting and celebrating those people that take it a step further to support artists and the Sona ecosystem that's collecting a Sona or a digital twin from an artist. So when like the very bare minimum that we can do is that whenever anyone is streaming the song, they see who that collector was. They see who sort of went out of their way to support an artist on their journey through loving that song. But seeing this emergent behavior of an artist saying, this is a fan that's going the extra mile. Like these are people that are showing up in a way that I haven't been able to quantify before, we discovered that there's like an extra power in actually nurturing that relationship. So we don't know what that'll look like in the future, but at the very least right now, it's opening a line of communication between an artist and that collector so that the artist and that team know who those people are and that that's something that we can facilitate.
0: To me, that brings up a couple of things that I think are really interesting. To some of your earlier points, I'm like a student of the hip hop, movement and growth right and like in the 90s for example houston hip-hop was having a tremendous run and what they did differently than almost every other coast if you will was they were like we're not going to do record deals we're only going to do distribution deals which meant that they were able to keep like 60 of the of the revenue on every album sold whereas other artists were getting like eight percent of an album and so i think they looked at an existing system and say how do we optimize this for the artist and the team if you will which I think there's some synergies to what's happening now in the ecosystem around digital music. Even the fact that artists are broken on TikTok and then get record deals afterwards is a reimagination of that relationship. I think about the fact that if you want to make an analogy, right, like record labels held the relationships with consumers. The only place that artists got that was through touring, right? That was the one to one opportunity. Whether 3 has an option to create a different relationship because you now have a direct relationship with your audience and your, your consumer base. I think the thing that I keep going back to though is that distribution mechanism still resides in Web2 properties and in IRL properties. The fact that you guys sit alongside the music industry, I would love for you to tell us a little bit more how that sort of helps that paradigm work. And then the live experience, because I think that's where so many people really reveal their love is by showing up. Are you guys also playing in that space?
2: I mean, a lot of what you say kind of echoes my experiences in music. And like I, I've only did like indie music deals over the course of my career and then eventually just became distribution. I do have my own label, but then it's, you know, it's my label. So it's a little different. So we do see how the music industry has shifted and you see these like boutique label services that have risen up. And artists do have this ability to be like, I'm going to pick and choose the parts of a label that I want to interact with and not sign a deal and just be like, I just want radio from you. I just want this from you. I just want marketing, et cetera.
3: So you're talking about sort of like having these like web two properties intersecting with sort of web three innovation. Like how do you actually push the needle in innovation and in music? And when you were talking about sort of like the TikTok phenomenon of artists breaking first, and then the label sort of trailing behind to try and catch a bit of that glow. I feel like they're grasping on to like a previous paradigm, right? And we're in this like weird flux state where audience growth isn't necessarily happening through a label. Like artists have a bit of that power too. But what artists haven't necessarily have had power to do through Web2 tooling has been monetizing their fan base in a really meaningful way to fuel their career. So what Sona's doing by straddling right the middle line is giving artists a way to grow an audience, right, because you have that discovery mechanism, you have a streaming platform, a place for people to discover your music and listen to your music. It introduces a way for someone to support their music more directly by collecting sonas from them, by pushing streaming awards in the direction by whatever other integrations and transactions we bring into the system. But lastly, what it's really doing is where. We're not necessarily carving out a bigger piece of the pie for the artist because we can't, right? We are a streaming platform. We are sort of tied to the rules that exist. But by giving more access to financial freedom to an artist that might not be signed yet, giving them that choice, they could potentially then have a lot more leverage going into a label deal. To speak to what Jen mentioned, where you're sort of cherry picking what will actually work for you, what will actually be of value to you. Because artists are already getting smart, but they're still being pushed into a corner because of the lack of access to capital. And I think what Web3 can be and what it should be is a way to really smartly and strategically
1: generate that capital for artists so that they have more creative control. If you think of this the streaming relationship, though, right? Like it is a little bit of a zero sum. Every hour I listen to on Spotify is an hour I'm not listening to on Apple Music, and I'm not listening to on on Son, etc. And so, how do you think about you kind know, of you know the customer acquisition, the, the fan acquisition from the listening side? And do you worry at all that? as you get more and more successful, you will actually get some sharp elbows from other platforms because you are eating into the streaming time. The
3: goal with building it as a protocol is actually so that the other streaming platforms could plug into our system because we're we're not trying to centralize streaming. We're not trying to be the next Spotify and centralize editorial again, like what we're actually trying to do is change what the beating heart of music payments are when it comes to streaming. Because right now, it's the attention economy. It's ad money, right? It is not necessarily a reflection of how much people love the music they listen to and the artists that they listen to. So what Sona does uniquely is it tries to capture a little bit off the top of that love and support that people have for the music they love and then distribute that based on streaming. And that can be totally supplementary to like a Spotify version or a Spotify payout. And because of that, right, if Spotify were to like partner with us and share streaming metrics on the music that's been minted, we could count that towards the rewards that are redistributed and make sure that across all these different touch points, we're capturing how people are engaging with music and making sure that as fairly as possible, we can share it out in that way. We don't want to be another monster streaming platform. We're very webstery in that way. And that we want to share this sort of like fundamental infrastructure.
0: When we talk about rewards, like this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently. Over the holidays, I was shopping and I saw Rick Rubin's book, Creative Way, and I saw Thurston Moore from Sonic Youth has a new book. Both of them were at the Strand autographed. And I was like, oh, now I have to spend a hundred dollars to buy both of these. And then I actually didn't because I was like, this autograph doesn't mean anything anymore because how many RRs are in Rick Rubin's book all over the country right now? It just became, it becomes a collectible that really has no other intrinsic value other than the fact that I'd already bought the audiobook version of this thing. So I don't need the collectible because it's, it was very different than me going to a concert, waiting outside and like finding the artist and getting that autograph when I was 18 years old. I keep wondering, how do we make that value exchange feel different? in a world where it's like common now for like the artist to show up at an after party that like a fan created because they want to like surprise and delight because it actually works so well on the social media content play of this. So how do we take rewards in the music space? Cause I do think it is a perfect analogy of how to get more brand love for an artist. And how do we make that actually valuable beyond that they like responded to my comment on Instagram Reels.
2: Our rewards are financial. So you're motivated by being able to be a big fan of an artist and support them through supporting their music. And the reward is, it's kind of two ways. It's You are choosing to support an artist by maybe getting one of their sonas for a song that they put up for auction. And in that way, you're also believing in them. And you are showing that like, I think you have potential, but it doesn't have to be that, right? I could just be like, I really like this artist. I like the song. I want to have their sona. And it could be, I see this artist. I see their potential. I want to have their sona. At the same time, the third part of that is the fan experience that we're talking about, this interaction with the artist. I do hear what you're saying, Sam, about it being kind of almost depersonalized. Like it was really hard to get an autograph back in the day. Now it's like, yeah, you can go on Cameo and get someone from the Real Housewives to like say happy birthday to your friend. You know, it is different. And you have this culture of just um, overconsumption and oversharing. And that's where we are. I think through what we're doing, even though our focus is kind of on the Sonas, you will have metrics as an artist where you can see who is really streaming you the most. You don't like on Spotify. I have these streams. I don't know who's my top 0.005% fans. They do when they get their Spotify rap, but I don't see that. And they're important to me. The ones that spend all their time listening to my music. I want to know who they are. I can. not And I find that kind of bizarre because it's really easy to set that up where you could see those metrics if it's going one way or another but you know with blockchain and through these smart contracts everything is is available for you to see so we'll be able to gather that kind of information as an artist you'll see who it, who are the people that are streaming you the most who are the people that are collecting your sonas and do things that are very personalized for them. Because you know who they are and you can choose what that might be, how much you want to interact. Or it can be like the kind of artist that doesn't want to interact with them and still stay enigmatic. That's just your artistic persona. But I know for me, if there was someone spending all their time with me, essentially, in my music, then I would want to do something for them and have that.
1: When you think about um, artists onboarding, right? in many ways, if you onboard a great artist, their fans will follow along. At least some portion of the fans will follow along. So as you're having these conversations with artists, uh, I'm curious, like what are people asking about? What they're concerned about? What are types of artists you're kind of targeting for is just curious kind of as uh, that first layer of of creators on the platform.
2: Our platform plays nice with any kind of artist, whether you have a record deal or if you're independent. We do like focusing on artists that are not signed because of the artists that we, we care about and they are the future of music. They're the ones that we need to give leverage to so that they do have this power and this following that gives them momentum when they do want to sign a record deal. It's really just communicating, education, explaining what this is. And so far, at least with all the artists that I spoke to, no one has a lot of major concerns because there's nothing to lose. You are still able to be on every other DSP. You can still be on Spotify. It doesn't change anything. You're just adding a new revenue stream, a new mechanism, something new to play with, something new to explore. And there's really no harm done. So why not try And that's why I'm trying to encourage everyone just to try this out. And if they're not into it, it literally doesn't affect anything else.
1: Do you get a lot of questions about that versus a bunch of other Web3 music platforms that have kind of launched over the last two years? It would be probably more interesting to hear
3: from the artists you're speaking to, but at least from the artists that we sort of interact with from the cold outreach to smaller indies and less like established acts. The overwhelming feedback has been super excited and positive. We do not position ourselves as a crypto or Web3 company specifically to save reputation and save face for artists that are participating with this platform. We don't require you to have a wallet. We don't require you to engage financially, right? It's just comes from this artist's music that you love. If you want to go the extra mile, you can share revenue with this artist and connect with this artist in a more meaningful way. Artists get excited about being able to connect with that bigger fan. And we've had a few artists even say that they wanna like release exclusively on Sona, right? Because they feel like this is the future and they get super excited. I'm like, no, please do not give up other revenue streams. Like this is a startup. <laughs> but that that passion, that excitement, right? I think is just more indicative of like people are tired of what is currently out there, are thirsty to like support what's next and what's new and what'll do right by them. And we're really lucky that we have a team full of trusted individuals and open-hearted people that are, I mean, we're truly building this in the most transparent way possible, <laughs> so that everyone knows exactly, right, how they're benefiting from this. There's no smoke and mirrors. It's the beauty of building it on chain. But ultimately, right, it being a blockchain company should be like back of mind.
0: Max, I feel like you're a big supporter of crypto. Should be on the back end and not, not to the audience.
1: Very, very much so, right? Because at the end of the day, um, the example I always use is we love having music everywhere, digital music at your fingertips. We do not talk about it being MP3 or MP4 or whatever other file format it is. It's just accessible. And I feel like in many ways, that's how I think about music in the Web3 realm. Let's just have these new engagement models with fans, monetization models for artists, but not spend
2: so much time talking about... The technology that powers that i just wanted to speak on this idea of making web3 behind the scenes that was a really good example using like no one knows what file format they don't even know if it's lossless they don't know like some how most people don't even go into their settings just touching back on this when was web3 or nfts ever going to play nice with music it never made sense to me and i've i've been participating in web3 pretty early and i never was presented an avenue that made any sense i was like these are just collectibles And that's not how people work with music. Most people listen to music. So just even harking back to when I first met Laura and this like very cryptic, super vague tweet that she put up regarding like keeping your IP, but still being able to, you know, stream music. I just figured that this was the most realistic way to ever use Web3 in this capacity in a way that's actually extremely beneficial and doesn't work with Web2 technology. But no one needs to know that. They just need to enjoy what they're using. And that's the thing that's important. That's where I see this technology being practical in the future.
0: Toki, you've had a successful career in a lot of different avenues. I think we had you DJ at Consensus 2022, yes. if I'm not mistaken. So we've, we've done things together and you've been a producer and now you're building this platform. As an artist, Like I keep thinking about when we're going to get our Web3 music moment, which is not going to be, I think did someone break out on sound? I think it's going to be someone who understands the rails here and says, this is someone who's committed to a new emerging technology as a way to connect with their audiences and grow, you know, in the same way that, it, that I sort of look at it through the lens of the mixtape, how like chance and Lord were discovered on SoundCloud. Justin Bieber was a YouTube star. Where's our pudgy penguins moment yeah. of someone who comes in and understands IP and the, the existing mechanism enough to really build someone into a personality.
2: I guess the more recent examples, like using people like Lord or even like Keytronada, or this whole thing where like, even Trap was built on SoundCloud. It's the social component. And what we have is, I guess, transition that SoundCloud had made. It's, it's different, but it had this golden era in 2010. And what we see is something like, like Spotify, where they took all the social elements out, and left it as this like very clean and efficient streaming mega house, right? And it's really about connection. When you're on YouTube, you can connect to Justin Bieber, you can leave a comment, you know, it feels personal. It's presented in a way that seems like almost like decommodified commodified. I don't know, it's like not presented with this pizzazz. You see this really honest, earnest version of a person or listen to like crazy demos that they're uploading every single day. Even with mixtapes, I remember like all the homies having like CDs and passing them out on Venice Beach. And it'd always be some dude with like headphones being like, you got, you want to hear this? You want to buy my mixtape? And that hustle culture is very personal. These are people actively seeking out their career in music by themselves and really launching it. And then they get picked up by these big labels. And that has worked in the past. And now we're in this phase where it wasn't working because the system sort of changed. And with Web3, we can enter that phase again where you can blow yourself up. And it doesn't have to involve TikTok or overexposing yourself in that way. If I listen to an artist, I don't need to always know what they're buying at the mall or if they're sitting in traffic, what their opinion is on whatever, you know, I want to listen to their music and maybe see some of their lifestyle stuff. If they want to share it with me, but I don't want artists to feel pressured to do that. I don't want to do that. You guys don't need to see what I'm eating for breakfast every day. It's usually just coffee. So, I mean, it's pretty boring, but I'm sure like if I had things I wanted to share with you willingly, that's the stuff you guys wanna see, not the stuff I feel pressured to share with you. And as a musician, it's really music first. And I just wanna perform, I wanna play music, maybe every now and then like share a nice cookie I ate and then that's about it. And so I think through Web3 through, we can go and empower musicians to just be creative in the way that they want to be without having to feel pressured by current societal standards of what it is to make it as a musician.
1: I would not be a VC if I didn't ask how you think about sustainability of your business model, right? Like you're taking 7% of all transactions. If you compare it to something like Spotify, I'm forgetting the percentage, but it's something closer, I think to 20, 30%. And so I'm just curious how you Balance? Because at the end of the day, you still want to stay sustainably in business, but you also want to share with collectors, but you also want to be very fair to artists. How do you think about how that works for you from a business perspective?
3: That's where sort of the protocol piece comes into play, right? It's not just like that 7% on our front end alone. The goal is that it's 7% on all these different applications that feed into that same underlying ecosystem. And obviously as a company now with like the licensing that we have, we have the opportunity to pursue other sorts of revenue stream, like sync licensing deals for artists, potentially exploring different avenues, but that at the end of the day, the protocol itself should be as sort of generous and pro-artist as possible. And the company that's built on top of it and supports itself can find other means to do so. But I refuse to build sort of a like a bedrock infrastructure for the music industry that still takes such a big cut. Because I think if you actually share it across all these different applications, that percentage, it's a big more than enough to sustain a company. And ultimately, right, the goal is that it would be more than enough to sustain an entire ecosystem.
1: Their margin is your opportunity.
0: That's right. Well, Laura and Toki, thank you for spending so much time with us today. Really excited to sort of follow along, see what Sona is building and how you guys are going to sort of help the artists achieve more opportunity. Anyone who wants to check it out, Sona.stream is where you find it. And we will talk to you guys soon. So, Mags, you are deploying capital in this space every day. Trying to. (laughs) Trying to, right? It's not easy as, as it used to be. What? is your take at this point on not just music, it's decentralized music, it's film, it's people who are trying to do books on chain. Like the idea of replicating these older structures in Web3, is that where we should be putting our focus? And was there anything that you heard in there that was like an interesting take on this that might have opened your eyes to a, an opportunity?
1: Well, so I think one music actually think is a very interesting category within all the other kind of creator categories because I don't think that music is so under monetized. If you think about the total enjoyment that an average fan gets out of all the music that they consume over the course of a year and how much they actually spend on music, for some folks it's literally just the 10 bucks on Spotify. Maybe they go to a concert, maybe they buy a T-shirt versus think about how much they spend on restaurants, on newsletters, on movie tickets, right? Like I just think music is so under monetized and so finding these creative ways where fans can not just support their favorite artists in kind of Patreon style, but also get something in return for that support, like the bragging rights of I was here first, I'm a big collector, or kind of closer relationship with the artist. I think music in particular is actually so ripe for innovation because we don't spend enough on music. And I think there is willingness to spend, but it has the challenges that all those other categories do as well. Right. It's you have so many different stakeholders and incentives of those stakeholders are very frequently completely at odds with each other. Like what artists want versus what fans want versus what the the establishment of the industry wants is so conflicting. So like all the time. And so replicating Web 2, but like Web 3, I don't think there's enough incremental value to justify the incremental complexity and friction associated with that. Which is why we have to start thinking about these very innovative approaches that are completely unique ways of tackling the artist needs, fan needs, and an experiment. Because at the end of the day, you can't come up with something truly innovative and different if you, one, don't have a good understanding of what the artists need, two, don't have a good understanding of what, what the fans want and are willing to pay for, and then just experiment and put it out of the world and iterate and, and refine as opposed to just kind of trying to come very top heavy. It is, you know, this traditional tech company, but now it's web free.
0: I guess to your point, though, right now I can spend whatever, $12 a month and get virtually every song I ever want on a Spotify. And as long as I'm comfortable renting music versus owning music, that's in perpetuity. Then it's maybe I'll go to a couple of shows a year and maybe that's another couple hundred dollars and then I bought three T-shirts like like that's really the finite goal of any any musician today when it comes to that large scale audience connection. I think the, the concept that Toki was talking about with the fact that we get a Spotify rap at the end of the year, but an artist doesn't, I think like it's fascinating. Like that to me, that's a total opportunity. And that is the kind of thing that on-chain data does pretty well to say, here are the wallets or the connections that listen to you the most, that bought the most from you. There seems to be an opening there. I also think that the modern musician is probably making more money on touring and brand collabs on social than they're making on their music streams. And really, is it just a loss leader to build their reputation? Because they know that once they hit a million followers or two million fans, they kind of can keep doing that as long as people are willing to come out for them. You know, Ice Spice is probably looking more at fashion collaborations than about what she's doing on Spotify. So it just—I agree—it feels like a big open area that needs a uh, an upheaval but i also feel like the existing platforms frankly are doing it so well because they're cheap buying youtube subscriptions buying spotify subscriptions it's just never going to compare to like how much you would have to pay an artist to give them as much as you do
1: yeah but you have the the modern platforms as the method of reach and then you describe kind of all other monetization avenues that an artist has purely because of their reach but mm-hmm. what's missing in the middle is actually the connective tissue of strength of engagement I listen to thousands of artists every year there are very few artists whose merch line I would be interested in like checking out let alone buying and there are very few artists whose collab is going to be interesting to me to potentially spend money on and so you have to have some form of deepening the relationship with your best fans and then I think that's where these kind of innovative models can come into play because otherwise you can run into the issue of having millions of followers and not having any actual success in converting them into dollars in non-music activities.
0: Absolutely. All right, Max, thank you for stepping in for Avery this week. It was so great seeing you. I always love your opinions. You are our first guest. I'm glad that you are now our most recent guest, uh, guest (laughs) host that is. Look forward to the next time we, we see you and we'll see you guys later, Gen Z.